All right. That's an amen right there. They can't say it, but that's what they're trying to say, an amen. It's so good to be back. I was in California last week uh, for 10 days, actually. Uh, it's not like Florida uh, um, at all. Uh, California's a little different. It almost feels like a different country, almost, in a lot of ways. Uh, but it was great. We brought about, uh, what, six or seven guys with us, and some of you guys are, uh, we, we ate well, and uh, we learned a lot, and we got to share the gospel a little bit, and it was a lot of fun, and I'll hopefully, uh, you know, over the weeks, I'll unpack uh, my time in California. It was a great time. So turn with me to Acts 8, 1 through 8. I just, I want to first uh, give honor where honor's due. I'm just thankful for Heath last week for giving the word. Way to go, man. That was awesome. You did a great job. And uh, he's, I mean, he, Afghanistan. And he, you know, he, he is wanting to be uh, a missionary to the people of the Middle East, a very tough place in the world. Um, and, you know, he's the man for the job. Uh, whenever he goes, whenever the Lord calls him, uh, that's between him and the Lord and, and, and his timing. But just so thankful for you. I mean, we did not plan that when we started the Acts series. Uh, that was, we started that back in the fall and uh, just said, hey, I'm, I'm leaving to California. Would you, would you mind preaching? So what do I got to preach on? I said, well, you got to preach on Acts 7. That's the next one in line. So uh, as we go verse by verse in the church, you just let the text speak, you know, and uh, God always has something for us when we do that, uh, which is uh, a way to build trust with the people of God, but also uh, a way to build a, a lot of depth um, in the Word of God. It's just, I'm so thankful for that message. Um, and, it, it, you know, today we're going to build off that, and, you know, today we're going to talk about being bold and courageous in the midst of persecution. And uh, I'm going to unpack that a little bit, but why don't we just read right now Acts 8, 1 through 8. It says, Saul was in heartily, hearty agreement with putting him to death. That's Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made a loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering the house, house after house, dragging off men and women he would then put in prison. In 1958, five missionaries were actually murdered and in deep into the jungles of Ecuador. Many of you guys probably have heard this story before, but they were murdered by Aka Indians, and it shocked the world. Why it shocked the world was because many people thought that these people literally had wasted their lives. They thought, why would these people go deep into the jungle knowing that they probably would be killed? And really, if they were to be killed, what purpose would it have? And so Nate Saint, one of the martyrs, one of the five martyrs, he was a airline pilot, and he drove the, if you guys know the story, uh, through the Gates of Splendor. Maybe you've seen the movie or read the book. Uh, but he, he flew in a, a yellow airplane, and he would, he would drive into the airstrip, and then they would get out uh, into the jungle, and they would share the gospel with these people that were very primitive. I mean, they, uh, as you see probably in the National Geographic, I mean, that's, that's kind of how they looked. But these people had never, ever heard the gospel. But Nate Sate, one of the martyrs, he said this, as we weigh the future and seek the will of God, does it seem right that we should have, 
should hazard our lives for just a few savages. As we ask ourselves this question, we realize that it is not the call of the needy thousands, rather it is simply making known the word of God that there shall be some from every tribe in his presence in the last day, and in our hearts we feel that it is pleasing to him, this is God, that we should interest ourselves in making an an opening into the Aka jungle for Christ. Worth it. Through the, is this, should I go to the mic or? Uh, I'm hoping that this microphone works. <laughs> but, anyways, it's worth it. And I, I love what Elizabeth Elliot, which was Jim Elliot, and you probably know that name a lot more. Jim Elliot's wife said this To the world at large, this was a sad waste. To the world, it was a sad waste of five young lives. But God, in His plan and purpose in all things, there was those lives that, changed, that were changed by what happened on the Palm Beach around the world. And listen to this. In Brazil, a group of Indians at a mission station Mato Grosso, upon hearing the news, dropped to their knees and cried out to God for forgiveness for their own lack of concern for fellow Indians who did not know Jesus Christ. In Rome, an American official wrote to one of the widows, I knew your husband. He was to me the ideal of what a Christian should be. In England, an Air Force major with many hours of jet flying, perhaps this is maybe going to be some of you, but immediately began making plans to join the Missionary Aviation Fellowship, gave his life. In Africa, someone wrote, our work will never be the same. We knew two of, two of the men, their lives have left a mark on ours. And then in Italy, an American naval officer was involved in an accident at, at sea. When he floated alone, as he floated alone on the raft, he recalled Jim Elliott's words, he had read, a news, read in a news report, this is what he says, when it comes time to die, make sure that all you have to do is die. <laughs> he prayed that he might be saved, knowing that he had more to do than die. He simply wasn't ready. God answered his prayer, and he was rescued. In Iowa, an 18-year-old boy prayed for, his, for a week in his room and then announced to his parents, I'm turning my life over completely to the Lord. I want to try to take the place of one of those five. Now you tell me if that was a waste. Because you know what? One of the things Tertullian said, he was a church father, the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. And I'm hoping that, you know, one of the things I love about our movement in Antioch is that we go to the hardest places. And we got people all over the world. We got people in the hardest places, in the, in the hardest reached places in the nations And I'm so grateful for people like that. And I really hope that some of you guys get the call of God on your lives to go give your life fully to the God, not knowing what's going to happen in your life, not knowing what will happen or what kind of fruit you'll bear, but just knowing that a life laid down always produces life. It always does. This wasn't a waste. And you know, just like Stephen's death, these five lives were not pointless. It actually sparked a revival. That that wasn't what Heath talked about last week. It wasn't a tragic death. It actually, that, that seed, it says in John 12, that unless a seed dies and goes into the ground, it'll never bear fruit. And I believe there's even people right here in this room. Yes, even during the pandemic, even during not knowing what's going to happen in this country or anything like that, but there are people here that are going to get the call of God on their life saying, I don't care what happens in the external world, 
but I'm giving my life to the nations. So that just like what Nate Saint said, that even though there are thousands of others around the world that I could reach, there are thousands even really in my own backyard here in Oviedo, but there are few in the nations that don't know his name. They've never heard the gospel, never heard of Jesus Christ himself, don't have a television to just see or a phone maybe perhaps to to even know what websites to go to. They're oblivious to this amazing you and I take advantage of every week, week in, week out. Some of you are going to be called. I believe it. Some of you are going to give. I don't care what happens in this world, what happens in our country or in five days, who becomes the president. It doesn't matter. Someone's going to give their life, and the rest of us, I'm hoping that we give our lives to to Oviedo, to the city, to one another, to our families, to lay our lives down to our, for our families. I mean, I'm believing that my kids will give their life fully to the Lord and say yes to him for the rest of their life, something I pray every day, that their spouses are hopefully growing up in better homes than, than the house that we're living in, that we become one great family for his purpose. That's and I'm believing that God will inspire you this morning to go, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of chaos and the unknown, to say, that doesn't matter, but my Lord's call matters, and it's louder than the voices of this world. It's louder. So in Acts 8, 1 to 3, what's, what is this persecution look like? And I want to unpack a little bit what this persecution looked like even in the first century, and really there's not much difference today. In fact, it says here in Acts uh, 8, you guys, I'm not going to go through the story of Paul. We'll pick that up in Acts 9. What an amazing story and testimony that is. But this man named Saul, who will become Paul, uh, he was ravaging the church. This, this word actually ravaged it is not in anywhere else in the New Testament, but here. And simply what that means is, he literally tore apart the church like a wild beast. That's what that word means. If you can imagine, it says here in uh, Acts 22.5, it says that the high priest and all the council and the elders can testify from them. I also received letters, this is Paul speaking, to the brothers and started off to Damascus in order to bring even those who are there in Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. And in Acts 26, 10, it says that, and this is just as I did in Jerusalem. Not only I did lock up many of the saints in prisons after receiving authority from the chief priests, but I also cast my vote against them when they were being put to death. He got permission to do this. This is what fueled him. Paul was fueled by the permission given to him to go ravage the church. In fact, Jesus' predictions were actually coming true that one day we would be hated. You know, what it's sad is that the American church, they're liked by the world because they look like them. There's really no difference. John 15 says this, that in Acts 18 to 20, it says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it actually hated you. If you were of the world, the world would actually love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. 
Remember the, world, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you as well. And if they followed my word, they will also follow yours also. You know, we can trust Jesus. His word, literally, that what he said to the disciples before he died is actually happening to the apostles now in the first century, a few years later. And those same words, how many of you know those same words are true for us right here in this room? I believe that. It also says this, John 16, 2, it says, they will ban you from the synagogue is what was actually happening. They kicked them out. They were in the synagogue, right? I mean, you touched on that last week. Stephen was preaching a message before the religious leaders in the synagogue. Yet an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering a service to God. Can I say that we're going to have a time in this country where people are going to feel that they're doing a service to God, not small g God, it's not to God, of course, it's a little different, the context, but they're going to have permission to persecute the church. They're actually going to have permission to come against us in their own morality. Do you know that the new God today is the God of morality and it is damning? It's self-righteousness. That's what that is. Let me give you an example. There's a book that just came out. I had mentioned it before. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a fantastic read. But one of the things they talk about is just going back 300 years to get to this point where we realize as as a society, it is normal to say, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. How did we get there? Fair enough question, right? I mean, we know what the Bible says, but just tracing back, going all the way back to the French Revolution poets, all the way through uh, Marx and uh, Darwin, you had Nietzsche, you had all these different uh, philosophers of the day. What they were basically saying was there's just the, the, they spoke about expressive individualism and the therapeutic self. In other words, years ago or even today, if I were to punch someone's jaw, I mean, you'd all say, though, that hurt Mike, right? I'm sorry, you know, and he might press charges against me, and, you know, he may not even, you know, the whole sticks and stones, break my bones, and words never hurt. I mean, you know, I mean, but the, the reality is I just jacked his jaw. I mean, I, I, I hurt him physically. He should hurt, and he should come after me. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but it's a different day today. That what hurts people now is uh, to hurt their feelings, it, to, to uh, come against their thought processes, to, to actually, to, it, it's, it's no longer, it's to wound somebody emotionally. It's no longer, I, I, it's, it's no longer a physical uh, a deal, but it's an emotional deal. And they trace this all the way through. It's fascinating to see how far we've become. And, you know, I could see now them making laws right now to get to this place where if I actually say something against your identity, then that's a crime. Before I was, I, I mean, I'd you know, come after you, I'd shoot you, I'd punch you or whatever. I mean, I should be put in jail for that, right? We all agree about it. I mean, it's simple. It's no brainer. 
But can you see how the First Amendment could possibly be changed to some degree based on our belief systems and what the Bible says? The new persecution is not necessarily going to be physical. No one's probably going to stone you. No one's going to throw rocks at you. They threw rocks at Stephen. But we don't have to fear that. I think sometimes as the church, we can read past these things. Just, oh yeah, we're going to be stoned. Whatever, let's move on to the good stuff. This is the good stuff. This is the word of God. And it's so relevant today. And guys, if you think I'm joking or trying to get everybody fearful or whatever, this stuff's coming, whether you like it or not. <laughs> this stuff's here. I mean, it's not even coming, it's here. It just has to, to make its way through the different cities and the different legislations. But it's here. And if you say something against somebody else, you could be done. You, you, could, you could lose your whole life. They could bury you. Whether it's social media, they could bury you alive. You know that they do this all the time. They could literally ruin your entire life. But God says, don't worry about that. But when you begin to speak against, you see, I, what I love about John 15, it says, if you become like the world, if you are the world, there's friendship. We're good. In other words, when Christians begin to compromise, when we begin to compromise the truth, we could be friends with the world. But when we take a stand, when we are bold and courageous, and we actually take a stand, and we're not, look, some people might say this, and I've heard people say this, you know, let's not try to pick a fight. We're not. Stephen wasn't trying to pick a fight. Paul was going, literally, it says in Acts 2, 20, or 22 and 4 and 26, Paul was actually going after not just men, but women. And not only that, but it actually says here that he forced them. He said, I tried to force them to blaspheme. The crime then was different than now, of course. It's a different scene. It's a different culture. It's a different time. It's 2,000 years later. But you will be forced. You will be forced. You will be forced to say something. You will be backed into a corner at your workplace or your, your family or whatever, you, you will be forced. It says right here, you will be forced in a corner. Although that's hard to hear. That is true. And my point of all this is I just want to stick to the text. I'm not trying to be political or trying to pick a fight or any of those things. I want to stick to what it is saying here and bring it back to to our day, but I want to prepare a church, a family, who will be in it for the long haul. This is a day and age that I said to our leaders yesterday, we had a, our leadership retreat. If you notice in the Christian evangelical world today, we're playing musical chairs. You ever play that game when you were a kid? It's a fun game. I mean, not, you know, kind of. We should probably play it. Let's play it. Whatever. Let's play it now. No, I'm just kidding. 
But you know how it works, right? There's a big circle. Everyone's got a chair. The music's playing. And then all of a sudden, everyone's running around while the music's playing. And then they slip a chair out, right? And they close the circle. And then they stop the music. And guess what? Someone doesn't have a chair. And I believe the same thing is happening today in the evangelical world amongst leaders in churches. I believe that there are going to be certain people today that don't have a chair, and they had a chair last year or maybe last month, and now they don't have a chair anymore. In other words, they have no relevance. Let me name some for you. Carl Lenz doesn't have a chair today. Hillsong doesn't have a chair today. They're irrelevant. If Ravi Zacharias was still alive, he would not have a chair today. Joel Osteen will certainly not have a chair tomorrow. Nobody wants that message anymore. Nobody wants the, you just be you, and you just, you're, you're, you're the center of the universe, and we just want to encourage you and lift you up. While persecution is happening, and brothers and sisters are being backed into a corner, that message is irrelevant. It just doesn't matter anymore. It's like a tune-it-out deal. And I want all of you to have a chair. And I know, that's, I know that's hard, but we are overcomers. The Word says that clearly in 1 John 5, 1, 5, 1 to 5. We are an overcoming people. And God wants us to overcome. He wants us to be in it for the long haul. But there, are a, there is a day coming in already today where it's not going to be easy, and I want us to stand for truth. I want us to be a people who actually stand for the truth for the long haul. Because, and you might ask, you know, why, why, is, the, why is it like this? Why, why is there persecution? You know, and it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they will not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ as the image of God. Ephesians 2.2 2 says, You previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We, we ha- we're living in a day right now where the, still the enemy is ruling the earth. He's behind the scenes. He's looking behind the he's lurking behind the scenes and he's working through government he's working through you know your workplace he's working through your bosses he's working through perhaps maybe family members or whatnot to persecute god's people and he's done it for years it just looks different today of course we don't have to deal with the same stuff as north korea we don't have to deal with the same stuff as our brothers and sisters in china or the middle east and we need to pray for those people and they're Frankly, I think they're praying for us now. They're going to be praying for us. And I don't know, I don't know if it's ever going to be that bad. I don't know what it looks like. I can't tell the future. I'm no prophet. But I do know that this passage is relevant for us today. And although I know sometimes it's like, well, one of the things that why we're going through verse by verse is so that we can't wiggle our way out of a verse or a passage and get to the good stuff. Get to the stuff that's more of the therapeutic stuff where I want to make me successful. 
like as if the Bible is some sort of life hack. Just give me the cheat codes of life. I, this isn't one of those messages, as you, as you see just before Stephen gets stoned to death, but yet he looks at his Savior and saying, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Who said that? His Lord said that. And he was able to see the courage that Jesus had on the cross, and he was able to do the same thing. That is the cloud of witnesses. That's why we need to read church history. That's why we need to actually get in the game. And also the, the therapeutic uh, self-book that I was telling you guys about, one of the things I was appalled, I couldn't believe it. One of the things they said in the average university, they just picked Harvard, one of well-known university. And I think I mentioned this before, but nobody's learning history anymore. So our, our whole culture is, is what he's called, he called it the anti-culture. What does that mean? It just means that we're anti-culture, we're anti-history. We don't need that anymore. In fact, it's bad. You just only learn bad things. Yes, this is really not fun to talk about. Stephen's death. I mean, Heath, that wasn't easy for you. That wasn't easy to hear. That's just not what you want. You're certainly not going to hear that in a seeker-sensitive or uh, attraction, an old church. You'd hear something like that. Because that's what gives us courage to say yes to the Lord every day in the face of persecution, in the face where it's awkward at the workplace. You know, when, when you're just about to talk about Jesus or you're about to mention something about God and your heart's beating fast and you don't know what to say and you're like, you know, like you, you could, you're stumbling over your words and you're on campus and you're sharing the gospel. It's just, it's awkward because it says that in 1 John five nineteen that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's why it's awkward for you and me. That's why even every time when I was in California, I shared the gospel with someone who was trying to sell me weed. This <laughs> is totally typical, you know. Didn't realize it was legal out there. I was like, wow, this is new. I've never been sold this before. <laughs> and so I'm sharing the gospel. Because and, and we were out there with the guys, and we're trying to find something to eat in Burbank and very ritzy place. You know, you see Warner Brothers and Disney Studios, the... It's a well-known area. It's a very, very beautiful place. It just reminds me of Winter Park. You're walking down, beautiful, nice restaurants and everything. No one could eat inside. All the stores are virtually closed. It's virtually kind of a So it's like, you know, let's just make the best of it. Let's, let's use our evenings to go share the gospel, hang out with each other. And so I got to share the gospel with this guy. And he was trying to sell me uh, some sort of product and whatever. Uh, and I, I forgot what it was. But the, he had a business card with him. And he's like, here guys. And he's handing them out. And then I, I just got, to, he's like, Hey, you want some weed? I got some weed and I got a product, you know, like a little twofer one deal, you know, <laughs> no, I'm all right. So I just say, Hey, I got something for you. And, uh, just, you know, this, you got to figure out your own segue. I mean, that, that's my segue. <laughs> you got to figure out your own segue. You, you find yours. This is mine. I got something for, I got something for you. And, uh, so I just started talking about Jesus, and he wasn't happy. I mean, his face just went from like, these guys, I got these guys. They want weed. I know. <laughs> I'm talking about two different things here, bud. But, so he was so frustrated, he wrote on his, his note card, he wrote 10%. He's like, here's your 10%, basically like, you know, 
reverend. You know, like, here's your 10% deal, and I'm out of here. He totally mocked me. I was fine. I, I mean, you, I like that. I was just, I, I don't know. That, that fuels me even more for some reason. I was just like, come on, baby. Who else? <laughs> you know, and I, that doesn't discourage me. I, so I'm walking. I literally, I turn around, and I'm walking this way. So like, let's go find a restaurant. And these two cops are like, guys, come here. I'm like, oh, no. I, I don't know what was going to happen. I was like, we were going to bust it for weed if it was a setup or something. I don't know what this was. He's like, so you, you're going to get cited right now for not wearing a mask outside. And I'm like, welcome to California. <laughs> and so I was like, are you kidding? What? I'm from Florida. I'm innocent. <laughs> Here's my ID. I don't need to see your ID, sir. We're just, we're cited. We're not doing any warnings since October. And I was like, I'm not even here in October. I don't know anything about this city. Doesn't matter. And I thought about it. I was like, this is a good sermon illustration. That's literally how I think. I'm like, you know what? I was like, it's segue to the gospel. You want to hear it? Whether we know the law or not, we're guilty. I didn't know the law in California. I, I, I mean, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. You know, a lot of us, a lot of us do that, right? Well, I didn't, we're going to say this guy, I didn't know. I didn't know the law. I didn't read the Bible. Guilty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I was thinking, thank you, Lord. Now I got to deal with the ticket. Literally, all that was flashing through my mind. <laughs> oh, that's the ticket. And, you know, I, I was, as I was thinking about this story, I was thinking about, you know, and I know I am not saying that I was being persecuted by any means. I mean, I, I thought it was backwards. You know, the Bible does say, uh, you know, Isaiah 5.20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's the day and age we live in. We're living there right now. And I think it is backwards. I mean, even though it's legal to sell and buy weed and smoke weed, but yet it's illegal to not wear a mask outside by ourselves. Nobody else was on the streets. We're just walking down the street and bam, $100 right there. I was like, I just, this guy just, just tried to sell me weed. What, I, what kind of world we live in? <laughs> it took me every bit of energy to just like, do you ever bite your tongue for real? Like, do you ever do that for real? I, have, I was like, I am doing that right now. I'm chewing on my... L- tongue. I know it's gross. I'm like, mm, don't say a word. Don't say a word. Don't say a word. And this dude was like huge. This big guy was muscular. Guy. I was like, just go catch the bad guys with those guns. Like, I'm not a... <laughs> so he's like, you know. And then so in the midst of that, Mike is... Mike, Mike did a great job. He's like, you know, I'm going to take advantage of this. I'm going to just share the gospel with these guys. I'm like, way to go, man. So he, I'm getting my ticket, and he's getting his, and... And, and so <laughs> we're like separated. And he's just, you know, just saying, hey, he's striking up a conversation. The, the, guy, the, the guy said, was just, he said, I've, I'm so glad I see you guys out and eating. I was like, I haven't even taken my girlfriend out since March. I was like, what a lame boyfriend. <laughs> like this guy, <laughs> so you need to take your girlfriend out and stop writing people tickets, you know, that's what you need to do. But he's sharing the gospel, and I'm just so proud of this guy. 
And he's, he's just saying, hey, you know, let's take advantage of this. Even in the midst of so-called persecution, he's saying, you know what? This is the only answer. This is the only answer in the midst of persecution is more boldness. Isn't that interesting that Paul said in Ephesians 6, don't pray for me in my uh, physical ailments. You never heard Paul say that. You never heard Paul say, well, I, I hurt here. You know, my back's hurting here and I'm hurting. The-. No, give me more boldness, God, to preach your truth. Don't pray for me. Oh, I just pray that the Lord would somehow, you know, bless me and get me my $100 back. And, I, you know, if you're in the charismatic deal, you double portion God. And, and I, you know, I get it back double, you know, because I suffered here. Like, no, just give me more boldness. Just give me more boldness. Do you know why Paul could say that? Because he died a long time ago. He was a dead man. And I'm telling you, the way to overcome persecution is dying to yourself today. And not only that, but asking for boldness for more. Because you can't kill a dead man. You can't kill him. I mean, they, they just... They beat the snot out of that man. I mean, not only that, but then the enemy threw waves and wind and shipwrecked three times. I mean, just it was over and over and over and over and over again. But then you read in Acts, he says, I don't live for myself. He says in Corinthians, I don't learn to live for myself. I've died. Guys, this is what it means to experience the word. This is what it means to say, I want to be in this. I don't want to be the one just like, oh, that's nice. But look, I want to be a participant in the end times. And I'm not saying the end times just because we're in America and it's a little bad for us and, and we're ignorant of what's happening on the other side of the ocean. This stuff's been happening for years. There's nothing new under the sun. I'm not saying now it's worse and this. I don't buy into any of that garbage on TV. Don't buy into that end times. Well, we're now we're really hitting the end times because America's going. Don't buy into any of that. This has been happening. Know your history because this has been happening for years. Ignorant of us. Know the word and know the fathers because that helps us stay in alignment. We don't have to go all over the place and get all in a frenzy. There's no frenzy. He was... Clear-headed, clear-minded, but he knew the word, and he knew his Lord, and he knew his purpose. He, can you imagine if the whole church, this whole church, actually was like, we're doing this. This is how we want to live. You know, I was telling the, the leaders yesterday, and we were talking about, I wish somebody would get their jaw jacked on campus. I know it sounds kind of weird, you know, when you say it like that. But I, I want to go to the hospital and, and, and comfort the guy who got his jaw jacked on campus because he shared the gospel in such a way that someone just jacked his jaw. I'm like, yeah, come on. I mean, I want the war scars. Who wants to live this morning? Who wants to really live? Those who die live. Those who lose their life live. Those who are like, I'm going to the grocery store today, I'm sharing the gospel, and I want to be run out of this place. 
Let's get run out of our campuses. Let's get run out of our workplaces. Let's live. We're not trying to pick a fight. We just want to preach Jesus. And when we do, there will be war. There will be scars. We need preachers. We're the preachers today. Where are the preachers? Where are the people that will boldly preach the gospel on campus, overseas? Who are the people that are saying, you know what? I don't know what my life's about. I, I can't even, I can't keep a job. I can't find a job. I don't know what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I want to give my life to the kingdom. I'm not talking about lazy or, you know, inadequacy or anything. I'm talking about, I don't know what to do with my life, but I just want to give my life fully to the kingdom. I want to see my Savior say, well done, my good and safe, good faithful steward. I want to live for him. I don't want to worry about what my friends are doing. You're so occupied with Jesus. You're so occupied with what he thinks and what he says and what he does that you're oblivious of everything else around you. I want to give my life fully. Ten or 12, or even younger who are here, give your life fully to him. It's worth it. It is. I love being a dad of little guys. I love inspiring the little guys to say, hey, I love going overseas. People are like, hey, will you guys go overseas? I know you go overseas a lot, but you probably don't take your family. Are you kidding me? Leave my family behind? wouldn't miss that for anything. Calvin said this, preaching is the living voice of God in his church. God begets and multiplies his church only by means of his word. It is by the preaching of grace and God alone that the church is kept from perishing. Do you want to see the church alive? Preach. Preach the gospel wherever you go. Go, make disciples. Not just converts, those are easy. But disciples, give your life to disciple making. May God raise up a bold and courageous generation. Theologian said this about George Whitfield His ministry was characterized by the relentless pursuit of the lost. The 18th century world had never been or never witnessed a preacher like this who would not be confined within the walls of the church building, but instead launched out into the world. These aren't just for evangelists. There are evangelists. Philip was one, which we saw here. Stephen was one. But you know what? In reality, we're all evangelists. We're all called to share the gospel. If you signed up for Jesus, you signed up for sharing. That's what you did. This isn't kind of a church where we're just saying, hey, just come hear the word and leave. Eat the word, digest the word, live the word, preach the word. That's what God's called all of us to do. There's no sidelines here. God's called us to do this. And what a privilege, what an honor. I mean, I just can't imagine doing anything else. It fuels you. You know, we're so afraid of persecution but it just, I, I promise, it fuels you. It's a lie from the enemy. He wants you to think that. He wants you to think, oh, don't do it. That's the worst thing in the world. No, the worst thing in the world is to be silent. The worst thing in the world is to cower in fear. 
The worst thing in the world is to turn your back on Jesus. That's the worst thing in the world. But I'll tell you what. When you get persecuted, you get stirred. And when you get stirred, you become bold like a lion. And you preach. And people come to Jesus. I love what you guys are doing and what we're doing as a church and the outreach is until 2 in the morning on Friday nights. I love that at the bars. I think that's awesome. One of, one of you guys just told me the story the other day. He, he was claiming to be a Christian. and or it, was, it was yesterday, I think it was. Just uh, claiming to be a Christian. Oh, I'm fine. I'm going into the bars. I'm, I'm good. And, and he's like, one of our college guys is like, you're not fine. You're in sin. And you need to repent. Yes, come on. I mean, that's awesome. Yes. You got like, yes. Yeah, but he got to feel that. There's nothing like that. Don't be satisfied with a secondhand story. That's not for you. That's just to fuel you. It's like, I'm, come on. Can't wait till Friday. Forget Friday. I'm going somewhere. I'm going to knock on dorm room doors. This is the hour, guys. Do not miss this. J.C. Ryle writes this. Whitfield was the first to see that Christ's ministers must do the work of a fisherman. They must not wait for souls to come to them, but must go after souls and compel them to come in. He did not sit tamely by the fireside. He dived into holes in corner after corner for sinners. He hunted out, he hunted out ignorance and vice wherever they could be found. In short, he set on foot a system of action which up to his time had been comparatively unknown. And this is what he says really about himself. He wrote this. I looked it up. Uh, Whitfield's, uh, they're just fascinating, just reading. He's like, I would rather die than not preach. This guy wasn't kidding. He wasn't just like trying to give some cute oratory speech. He was serious. These guys, they had such ailments, they had such sickness, they didn't let anything bother them. And one such, they put the American church to shame. But I don't think it's, I don't think it's meant to be co- condemning. God didn't give us these books to read. Condemning, he gave us these books to read to be inspired. And this is what he says. The whole world is now my parish. Wherever my master calls me, I am ready to go and preach the everlasting gospel. In other words, that, outside these four walls, that's my church. And I'm going to build it, like he said. And the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. In other words, guys, we don't need to be political. We don't need to storm the gates of the White House. But we need to storm the gates of hell. That's what we need to do. We're, we're not here to just play games. We're not here to just watch the news, get depressed. We're here to watch the Bible and get inspired. That's what God has called us to do. That, I mean, we're not here to play the enemy's games. They're trivial. He is the God of this world, but he will be crushed underneath our feet, Romans 16. He says that. There's nothing to worry about. But when we all choose to be in the game and be persecuted, watch the pastors come to your bedside. Watch the love in this room go to a whole new level. There's motivation to pastor, right? Think about it. Sometimes we're, 
wanting to coddle one another and just love one another. And sometimes someone just needs to be, what are you doing? I need to go out and share the gospel, and then you can do that later. <laughs> right? We're coming here, we're like, I just need encouragement. I need some more encouragement. No, you need exhortation to go. And when you come back in, you'll get your encouragement. That's what I see as the church. I mean, if I'm being honest, that's what I see here. What did he do in, in the face of persecution? I love this. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word, verse 4. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention. There was hunger, and I believe there's hunger in the streets. To what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, as they often do. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was much rejoicing in the city. You want Oviedo to be a city of joy? Preach the gospel. We need to see people delivered. We need to see people healed. You can't just manufacture joy. Uh, Joel Osteen can for five minutes, but you can't manufacture, you can't do that. I can't put that in you. Joy comes by laying your life down. Joy comes by speaking up when no one else is. Joy comes from laying your life down for those who are not like you, like the Samaritans were. What I love about this passage is if you know the background of Samaritans, nobody wanted to be around those people. But you know where they took their cue from? Jesus. You know, as the disciples came back with that food, they said, Jesus, uh, who are you talking to? <laughs> talking to a Samaritan. What did he do? He broke all cultural norms. And I believe there are people here today that are going to be called to overseas. They're going to be called to the places where maybe perhaps your conservative friends or your people in your workplace are downplaying the Middle Easterns, the, 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 the Japanese, the Chinese, or whoever they may be, and say, no, no, those are God's people. Those are his people. Don't you dare downplay them. Don't you dare talk about them that way. Those are God's people. They may have had a bad history. They may have had a bad uh, season or, or they, they may, in, within their culture, do some bad things. But the fact is, they're God's people and God wants to save them. And I love this. This is absolutely phenomenal. I will show you this. John 4, 38 says this. I have sent you to reap. This is right after he talked to the Samaritan woman. I have sent you to reap that which you had not, what? Labored. When I was studying this, I, I was blown away, actually, that the others who were was John the Baptist. When you look at the context, you know, back in, uh, I think, I believe it was John 3, 23, if you want to look that up, those were the laborers that Jesus began to enter into. And not only that, but then the, the, if you look at Acts 8, 
14 to 17, which we'll look at next week. But they began to get deeper into Samaria. And the reason why they had fruit, which you'll see, is because Philip went there and sowed seed. The reason why we had fruit in Japan and got a church off the ground was because somebody else labored. Somebody else laid their life down. Certainly that wasn't us. I know that wasn't us. I know that God already prepared those people to hear the word of God before we came. And it was in the mercy of God that we got to reap because somebody else sowed, somebody else watered, and we reaped. But who gave the growth? The Lord. When I saw this, I was like, man, that just fueled my faith even more for the nations. It fueled my, you know what? We're reaping fruit today on the campus of UCF because somebody else labored. I know it's only about 50, 60 years old, the campus, about 60 or so. But somebody else was laboring. If someone can find the history of that, I'll pay you. <laughs> but somebody, I got to be careful what I say. <laughs> I, I didn't give any dollar amount. <laughs> but, but I want to find out. I want to find out. I'll pay for your mission trip. No, <laughs> it's, on a, it's, on a, it's on the recording. <laughs> Just a little snippet. <laughs> Edit that out, sir. <laughs> no. But I want to find out because I'm not ignorant of the fact that if we're reaping fruit today, somebody sowed yesterday. Someone sowed yesterday. You know, the reason why we have this church today is there's a man named Jonathan Gully that gave his life in Wheaton, Illinois, from Waco, Texas. The reason why Jonathan Gully even has a role and planted the church because of a man named Jimmy Seibert in Waco, Texas. Even before him, there was a man, there was a man, there was a man, there was somebody, somebody else, somebody else, somebody else, somebody else. I was in California and the last time I had been in L.A. County was I was 18 years old. And someone gave me this blue track I didn't want anything to do with that. I was unsaved. I was a high school student going into college my freshman year, just doing one little last trip. Someone gave me this gospel track and a Bible, stuck it in my book bag, went to the Dodgers game, forgot about it. And I looked at the guys who were eating Thai food in Burbank. We, get, we had masks on at that time. Uh, People in California eat through their mask. It's incredible. I've never seen anything like it. But they do it. It's incredible. But we, we ate, and as we were sitting, uh, we were reminiscing that. And I, and, I, and I looked at the guys, and I said, I know this sounds kind of weird. And they're all married men and, and from this church and just found life here. And I said, you know how crazy this is? If this man in California 20 years ago I was there. Didn't give me this piece of blue paper with the gospel on it. We wouldn't all be sitting here right now. That's crazy. That that blows me away. That somebody, it takes somebody to sow a seed. It takes somebody to water that seed. And then eventually God will have his mercy and grace and we will reap it. But who's going to go? Who's going? I want to close with this. 
I, I, I came across this story, touched my heart. I wanted to, couldn't wait to share it with you guys. There's a story of John Rogers in the 1500s. He was a Puritan guy. It was the time of, uh, well, he gave birth to the Puritans, but he was a, a Reformation guy during the time of the Reformation. He was born in 1500, schooled at Cambridge University in England, but he was Catholic, and at that time, the Catholics, it was normal to be Catholic. It was not normal to be Protestant. You could actually get severely persecuted and killed for your faith to be Protestant, to go against the Catholic Church. He quickly moved. He was an unbeliever, but he quickly moved to Antwerp, which is now, uh, at the time, was Holland and is now Belgium. But Henry VIII was the king of England, and he was for the Catholics. They'd have kings that were Catholic, then they'd have kings that were Protestant, and they could kind of go back and forth in that nature. But King Henry VIII, he wasn't as brutal, of course, as Queen Mary, but he was pretty bad. And so he had to flee and go to this, basically, he fleed to Holland to work with merchants in, in a house full of men, which we'd call maybe today as a D house, like a discipleship house. But then uh, in around the 1530s, King Edward takes the throne, but he was nine. Can you imagine being nine years old and the king? I told Ella that. I was like, can you imagine being a queen at nine years old? She's like, yes. <laughs> That'd be wonderful for her. Wouldn't it? But unlike his father, Edward was a Protestant who trained under uh, the biblical uh, reformers and biblical teaching. They would train him up, and he was nine, and then he, he died. Unfortunately, he died an early death. The enemy took him right out, 15 years old. But he was Protestant. It was peace in the land for those short amount of years, about six years. And then Queen Mary came. If some of you guys know her as Bloody Mary, if you've read history, and she was Catholic. She was brutal. No one wanted her to be in. Her half-sister died, and she became queen. I think she, the half-sister only lived for about a couple of days, and she marched in to England, and she was known to kill 280 people at the stake, burn them alive for going against the Catholics and Catholic theology, they went against the Catholic Mass. You couldn't speak about the Catholic, against the Catholic Mass, couldn't speak about the way they do communion, uh, transubstantiation, meaning that the literal, uh, the, the body or the, the bread and the wine become the literal body and blood of Jesus. And it's a little warped in that view, but you couldn't speak against it. But they went back down. And in Holland, John uh, Rogers became good friends with, many of you guys know this name, it's a household name now, William Tyndale. He was working on translating the Bible at the time. William Tyndale was in hiding also. He ran away and he found refuge in this house. But the cool thing was, is William Tyndale ended up sharing the gospel with John Rogers. John Rogers gets saved. Then Tyndale gets arrested, put in jail, and then killed. And they were coming after his materials. And John Rogers, last minute, took all his materials, picked them up, and said, I've got to complete this work because people have to hear the word of God in English in their own native tongue. And you and I have this Bible today because of these two men. Many people know William Tyndale, of course, but very few know John Rogers. King Edward was still at that time living, so he came back to England. But then right then he then die, or, or, or like I said, Edwards died, 
and Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, came into office. The only problem was is John Rogers was now fired up to preach the gospel. <laughs> he was inspired. He was a scholar. I mean, he finished the Old Testament. He finished many of the books that William Tyndale couldn't read. In fact, he, uh, one of the stories is that he purposely skipped all the prophets and went right to Jonah because he said England needs to hear this message about Jonah. They need to repent. So he began to preach, and of course, that really ticked off Queen Mary, got arrested, put in jail, stayed there for about a year, and this is in the year 1555. And so he was sentenced to death. The sad thing was is that the, they didn't recognize his marriage. He couldn't go back to and have his wife even come and visit in the prison because the Catholics at the time said, we don't recognize ministers as being married. Of course, some of you guys know that. And so they were cruel to him and said, you're not married, even though he was, and you're not seeing your family. You're going to die without them. And they kept taunting him. They wouldn't let him out. They wouldn't let him see his family. But little did you know that these people were so ruthless. Queen Mary was so ruthless that she did not just want them to die. She wanted them to suffer even more. And she put, the, she, she, this was the first burning of the stake. There would be 279 or 200 and whatever I said, 280, 279 after. But they would burn the people right in front of the church. So that day there was people from France coming in. There was people from all over Europe coming in because they didn't think Queen Mary would follow through. They got the stake ready, built it, built it up took John out of prison. They marched him, paraded him right before his family. His family was, sitting, was standing there off to the side. Of the, the mother was, they, he, there was a baby that was born during the time of his imprisonment, so you never saw his baby. They tied him up. They paraded him right before the, the people. But you know, the cool thing was, is all the congregation was there to watch. It was like the cloud of witnesses in Hebrews. It says the great cloud of witnesses were there to cheer you on. People were cheering him on. People were saying, don't back down. Don't give up. This is right. Do it. This is for the Lord. There's a great cloud of witnesses gathering around. And as the wife and all the kids were standing there watching their father be burned alive. And the mother just nursing the baby. Can you imagine? You can never hold him. And the kids were, you don't back down. And one chance, he had one chance. He had one chance. He said, will you recant? This all could go away. We'll untie you. You can go scot-free. Recant? <laughs> I can't recant. This is what my Lord did. How could I recant? How could I recant? They tied them up. What they would do is they would start with the feet. They'd flame them up in the feet, and they would, they would put uh, explosives around the chest. They would literally blow them up. They would start with the feet, and he said, this is what he said. I was blown away with this, but the one observer said that as the fire was lit, and though Rogers was doused with flames, it seemed as not he could feel its wrath. He said it felt like cold water. As he lifted his hands to heaven, he said, Lord, let me burn for you. 
Let me burn for you in your glory. Let me burn. You know, culture is trying to get us to die on every hill. But John Rogers died on the right one. And let me tell you, you know what? I, I think you got to decide today. It's like a Joshua moment right now. Is choose today whom you'll serve. You'll never decide that as you're being tied and being burned to the stake, so to speak. That's not the time you decide. I would imagine John Rogers, he decided the day he got saved. He's like, my buddy, William Tyndale, who shared the gospel with me, if that happened to him, it probably could happen to me. He probably never thought that maybe literally would happen, but he, I'm sure, crossed his mind as he finished the work of the Bible and gave his life for the kingdom. As you read on, you find out that though it was the first of Bloody Mary's martyrs all across England, I mean, it would be the north and the south, you can it was almost like Bloody Mary was purposely showing all of England who was boss. She had people being killed in every square inch of the country as basically to prove we're not tolerating this here. You know, I don't know if that's going to happen here, and I don't know what it looked like, but all I know is that it gave many men, the 279. In fact, during that time, just moments when he was dying, there was, a, where there was somebody else being burned to the stake. And word got to them. And they said, you can do this. Because John Rogers lifted up his hands and said, Lord, I want to burn for you. That's what these stories do. That's what it means to learn church history. It's to find courage in these people. In the face of opposition, in this culture who has no respect for history, wants to be the anti-culture, the anti-history, we need this. We're going to be the generation that says, you know what? Not only will we move forward, but we're going to move forward with those guys. We're going to move forward with those guys because they're going to give me the courage to say yes tomorrow. There really isn't anything worth living for. But let me ask you this. Will you stand for truth? Will you stand for truth even if you're going to lose your job? Or will you back down in fear? You're not alone. We won't allow that. We'll cheer you on just as they cheered John Roberts on. We'll, we'll cheer you on. We'll be there. We'll cheer you. You'll have, yeah, you have greats of old. But you have modern day saints. You're looking at them. It's a family. You're not alone. You're not. You're not alone. It's worth it. It'll be worth it. To some of you right now, this message has no relevance to you. But it will. You might be like, that was the lamest sermon I've ever heard. That's okay. But you know what I know about the word, as the Holy Spirit said? He'll bring it back when you need it. This, we'll remember this moment. 
here. You'll remember these stories. You'll remember what Stephen did. You'll remember what John Rogers did. You'll remember what William Tyndale did. You'll remember every time you open up your book. In fact, you'll open up every time you read a book and the Tyndale publisher is right there. You'll know, cost something. Cost something to have this. Much more than $30. William Tyndale said, the reason why you sometimes see a plow, he said, I want every man and every woman, every common person, those who are out in the fields to know the word of God. And it cost. It cost him greatly. Every time you read the word of God, say, it cost people for me to sit there in the living room with my latte and my phone and my journal to read this amazing word. What an incredible privilege we have to stand on the shoulders of these men and women. 288 died at the stake in the mid-1500s. Only four years. They were the worst four years in England's history. 1555 to 1558. But I'll tell you, they weren't a waste. They weren't a waste because it inspired the Puritans for the next 150 years to write and write and write and write and write and write and write with confidence that this word is true and you can trust it with everything that you have. Trust it with everything that you have. His word is true. It is the word of God, the inspired word of God and has authority over every man and woman in, in this house and in the, entire, in the entire world. Everyone will bow the knee to Jesus. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. Are you in? Moses told Joshua in Joshua 1, do not depart from this word and you'll have success in the land. They they've made two mistakes in the middle of Joshua and at the very end in Joshua 24, Joshua stood there and said, I don't know about you guys, but as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. The question is, will you? Will you do it? Will you do it? I hope so. I really do. I hope I have a family here that would stand for truth. And one that when when one does, they will cheer them on as one is being persecuted. We'll visit in the hospital. We'll encourage. We'll be there for them. And you know what? That gives us the courage to go out tomorrow and say, hey, no matter what, I have my Lord and I have a wonderful, amazing family that I could call home. That you know what? If I take a step out, I know that they're with me. They're there. And I could live this this crazy life No matter who's president, no matter who's in charge, Jesus is on the throne. He's here. He's among us. He's with us. There's nothing to be fearful of. Absolutely nothing. That's the pastoral encouragement I have for you. You could trust him. We're here for you. If you need something, if you just got your jaw jacked, call me. I'll be the first one there. I want to be there for you. We want to be there for you. You got some, we got some amazing 
men and leaders in this church who even in the face of persecution Mike's standing there hey we could complain or we could preach and I'd rather preach Father we ask you right now we ask you for your power and like Paul we don't want to just pray for all the all the trivial things and though they're important we need to do we need to pray give us this day of daily bread and that is important but the spiritual is more important that though the outward appearance were fading, but inwardly, it says in 2 Corinthians 4, we're growing and we're getting more beautiful and more like Jesus and we don't have to complain, we don't have to shout, we don't have to yell at police officers, we don't have to, we don't have to react that way. We can have, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can have self-control and we can trust God. And just for the record, when I was in class, this is how God, I want to encourage you, this is how God actually takes care of his people. this way. And I don't think we need to presume upon God. But as I was in the class, back in where I was, back in, the, in California, I uh, was just sharing some of the stories with some of the guys. Like, I got a ticket. I don't know what this is. Did, you get a, did any of you guys experience this? Like, no, that's crazy. So I was like the talk of the class. I mean, everyone's taking pictures of my ticket. Like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I'm like, I got a $100 ticket. Why is this cool? And then one guy said over there, he said, what did I hear? You got a ticket? Where? In Burbank? Oh, I got a guy. I got a police officer in Burbank. We'll get that taken care of. So he took the picture and sent it to the police officer, to the sergeant, and said, we'll take care of that. That's amazing. That's an amazing God we serve. A gracious God. Gracious God. Whether we be burned at the stake or God delivers us, whether we're like friends, we're not going to pin Caesar's altar. But whether we get delivered by it or through it, God will deliver us. He'll deliver us. And I put my pla- place my trust in him alone. And I'm not going to presume upon God for anything. But I'm not going to back down either. Let's be that bold church. Let's to go overseas. Caleb, don't give up on that. The Indonesians. Don't give up on that. Don't give up on that business plan. Business's missions to reach those people who are impoverished in Indonesia. You're born for this. You're made for it. Heath, don't give up on it. You have a time here to, to build us up. You have maturity here, and we need what you have. But do not give up on it. Don't give up on the Middle Easterners. Phil, don't give up on China. Don't give up on Taiwan. They need it. More than ever, Taiwan needs it. Don't give up on learning the language and praying for that nation. Now is the time. We need Esther's to rise up. We need Daniel's to rise up. We need Joseph's to rise up. We need John the Baptist to rise up. Will that be you? Let's stand to our feet. We have a lot to worship.